Welcome to the Lovejoy Hour, sponsored by Cooker, 100 degree boiling hot water straight from your kitchen tap. As regular listeners know, mine also does chilled filtered water and chilled sparkling filtered water. I truly love mine. Can't imagine not having it anymore. For more information, go to cooker.co.uk. This week's Lovejoy Hour, I'm curious about whether the approval rating for the Misuse of Drugs Act is now on the wane. As regular listeners know, um, I've had my mind completely changed about drugs on this podcast and I've recorded a few podcasts on the subject. We need drug reform. Having drugs um, illegal is just, it just doesn't add up. The Misuse of Drugs Act is 50 years old, so I thought it was time to revisit it and see if we are moving in the right direction. Joining me to talk about it is Neil Woods, who's ex-drug squad and one of the leading voices for drug reform. Neil has written the books Good Cop, Bad War and uh, Drug Wars, which I highly recommend you read. Seriously, read those books. It will change your mind um, about the way we perceive drugs uh, in this country and the world. Let's meet him. Here's Neil Woods. Uh, Neil, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Tim? In this yeah, training? I'm really good, thank you. I'm really good. Um, so it is 50 years of the Misuse of Drugs Act, so we'll, dis- we'll discuss that. Um, uh, I suppose, first of all, we've got to say, how is the climate um, for drug prohibition at the moment? Are, pe- are people positive towards it in the world? How are you finding it? Well, I mean, it, it depends where you are in the world, because obviously different governments are, are at different stages of drug policy reform, uh, depending where, where their politics is at. But I think the most important thing to remember about drug prohibition is that, you know, the fight to end it, um, the fight for drug law reform is a, is a social justice fight. And in that regard, it's very similar to historical, similar justice, social justice fights, such as um, the illegality of homosexuality, equal gender pay, uh, civil rights movement in America, you know, what, whatever the social justice movement, it's 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 like that. Uh, it's part of that series of society's development, so to speak. Um, and as such, you know, it's very rare for any social justice issue to change through political leadership. It changes through social movement. And so it's the job of, of, of me and my organisation and all, all of our allies to try and get that social movement to, to grow quicker. And obviously, you know, we're more successful in some countries than others. So, you know, whereas they're, they're making huge steps forward in Canada, not necessarily making huge steps here yet in the UK, but, you know, there's lots of the um, the Baltic states are talking about decriminalisation and, you know, there's various things going on around the world. Even, even Mexico talking about decriminalisation and regulating cannabis. So, you know, there's always movement, but we've just got to keep pushing it. You know, people still think I'm, um, they think I've lost the plot <laughs> when I say about drug reform and stop making drugs illegal. Uh, we've been so brainwashed for so many years. I'm, I'm on various WhatsApp groups and one of them, which has got a lot of uh, men on it, they're all constantly talking about alcohol and putting up mm. pints, pictures of pints when they're drinking because they get allowed back in pubs and pub gardens and things. And yet, whenever I say I think there should be drug reform, they will they think i'm a lunatic we've been as i say we've been so brainwashed do you ever get fed up with people thinking you're mental you're mad you're because you because you 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 go down this path 
Well, I mean, yeah, and I agree with you. It is one of the most bizarre bits of hypocrisy uh, when we talk about alcohol, which is actually proven to be more dangerous than, than almost all of the, all the, the drugs that are illegal. So, so, yeah, but I mean, I've been sort of completely uh, swallowed up by this world of drug law reform. It's been my full-time occupation now for the last five or more years. And, you know, five years ago, I was considered much more of a lunatic than I am now. The, the whole issue is now mainstream politics. Mm. You know, that things are changing. For, for, the, for this year, it is the 50-year anniversary, and with our allies, there's a lot of campaigning going on. And there are 50 parliamentarians, that symbolic 50, that have signed up to this campaign to repeal the act. Uh, and that, that's, that 50 uh, parliamentarians is hosted by Transform Drug Policy Foundation. Now, five years ago, there was only really one outsp- outspoken MP um, who might have signed something like that. So the, the change, even though nothing is, is yet changing in policy, that's an enormous shift in just five years. I suppose for anyone who's just tuned in, two things we need to do is one, quickly explain your background. Um, three things. Two, just quickly recap on the main points of why we need drug reform. And three, I think we need to uh, talk a bit more about the Misuse of Drugs Act and actually tell people what it is and what, why it needs to go. So let's start with you. Um, just give us a quick summary of, of you, you being an ex-drug uh, squad and everything else. Yeah, I'm a former police officer. Uh, I was in the police for 23 years and over 13 of those I worked undercover. Um, so I used to essentially catch drug dealers for a living. It was my it was my main you know reason to get up out of bed every day and chase chase drug dealers. Um, but over the space of that time working undercover, uh, the, eventually the penny dropped for me and I realised that I was significantly causing more harm than good. I was causing great harm to vulnerable people who needed help. But also, violence was increasing as a result of almost every operation that I did. You know, and um, all, all that policing does is make organised crime more powerful, makes our society uh, more corrupt, and it endangers vulnerable people. And I suppose one of the interesting things is everyone's been absolutely captivated by um, line of duty. And uh, you actually lived that life, didn't you, really? With, you didn't know which cop was bent or which one was uh, a good guy? Yeah, exactly. And, and I just wish people realised just how well informed line of duty is. Uh, but, but, but in bearing that mind, you have to see that, that the kind of corruption that they, that they talk about in line of duty, and that actually does happen, is only possible because of the value in the illicit drugs markets. No other kind of criminality can pay for that level of, of corruption. Let me just give you a procedural example that proves that that level of corruption happens within drugs investigation. See, when I was, I was, um, I used to work for the organisation, the East Midlands Special Operations Unit, and I would be loaned to different police forces as a sort of undercover asset. Now, before I would get to those police forces, the team that had to be set up in a very uh, systematic way, you know, there'd be, a, there'd be an exhibits person, there'd be a techie, all the team that was set up beforehand would be given a lawful order by the senior investigating officer before I got there, that they were not allowed to know my real name and they were not allowed to ask me where I was from or what my name was and that they would be disciplined if they did. And that team would have to be completely cocooned away from normal policing. So they would be told that during the, during the whole period of this operation, you will not talk to any other colleagues about this operation. Now, the reason 
that those safeguards were in place was because of the presence of corruption. And the, 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 the sort of the fact that they do exist is proof in itself that the organisation knows about that corruption. But bear in mind, that's only for drugs investigations. It's not needed for anything else. Mm, and that's because there's so much money and so much violence involved in drugs. Yeah, exactly. And, and what policing has done over time is it has actually increased the level of corruption. Because say you take out a kingpin, someone who's in control of all of the heroin supply in one city, just half of that city, and the police celebrate it, they publish the photographs and tell everyone they made a big arrest. The people who are most equipped to take up that uh, opportunity, that gap in the market, is the person who controls the other half of the city. So what we do by policing drugs is we constantly grow those monopolies. And if you suddenly have twice the share of the market, you've got twice as much money to invest in corruption. And why would you not invest in corruption? Because that's the best way of staying three steps ahead of the law. Do you know what's so interesting? I was on Sunday brunch the other day and we did a, a celebration of uh, whiskey and we were talking about the women's movement who forced prohibition in America. And they forced it because they thought their men were, were unruly and disrespectful and spending all the money on alcohol. 13 years later, the whole country was like, what the hell are we doing? We've just created more violence. We've created a worse environment for us all to grow up in. And so they got rid of prohibition. And I'm sitting on my show and it's so hard because I desperately, but I'm, you know, I'm not allowed to do this, but I'm desperately wanting to go, hold on, we're doing exactly the same thing with drugs yet. It's lasted 50, uh, how many years now? Over 50 years. Uh, and we're still doing the same thing. What? Look at the lessons they learned there, but people cannot see it. And I, and I, just, and I just draw you to um, Keir Starmer, the other day, which I found so frustrating because, um, you know, whatever you think of the Labour Party, he's the guy in charge at the moment. And he, he uh, in the press the other day, he ruled out the liberalisation of drug laws, stating he had seen too much damage, which is so contradictory in his past role as prosecutor and his work. Um, and he said his work would be on the wrong side. Uh, sorry. And then he said, when I was director of public prosecutions, I prosecuted many, many cases involving drugs and drug gangs and the criminality that sits behind and it causes huge issues to vulnerable people across the country i've never gone down that route now so i was just reading out the bit i was saying there i think he's worried that he his work will be on the wrong side of history like your career was as um as a, a drug squad and i think that is his problem with it don't you that's actually a really good point i hadn't quite seen it in exactly those terms but perhaps you're right you know perhaps it's like a lot of senior cops they don't want to admit that what they've been doing is causing harm but I mean, it's, it's frustrating in terms of Labour because I, I took part in many of the um, events over the last couple of years led by the Labour Drug Policy Reform Group, in which they canvassed the membership, they held public events uh, to, in order to have a membership um, in, informed drug policy. And that was presented at, at the conference. And it was, you know, it's voted on. So the, the membership wants drug policy reform. And some of the, some of the measures in that are... Uh, looking towards a legally regulated cannabis market, heroin-assisted treatment, so the, you know, decriminalisation. There's lots of positive things in there. So, you know, the political movement within that party is actually wanting the leadership to do something different. And, you know, and actually all of the parties are starting to think in, in, in similar terms to one degree or another. But you raise a really in, another interesting point there, though, 
uh, term. Because quite often, you know, I speak to audiences all over the world. And, and sometimes if I get an audience where it's, it, was a, it was an audience of very doubtful people and, I, and, the, and the facts have won them over, quite often the question I get from the audience is, well, look, what you're saying is so logical and it's so clear that this policy has been a disaster. Why do our politicians not change policy now? Because the evidence is obvious. And that's an interesting and important question. And there's a few answers. You know, of course, uh, the public has been brainwashed by the media. The public has been brainwashed by politicians. But I've actually got a fairly old-fashioned view of politicians in that they're generally good people who want to do the will of the people. And the problem is, this, as I've said, this is a social movement. But the social movement isn't growing fast enough. And that's because the narrative is controlled by the police. Now, if, if you were to consider international drug prohibition as a business, a, a business model, it would have the most powerful marketing strategy in the history of business. Because wherever you are in the world, whatever country it is, from Japan, China, USA, wherever you are, the police are constantly putting out three marketing images. But firstly, there's the image of the doors being smashed in by a battering ram or whatever. Then there's the row of mugshots of all the people who've been arrested in a gang. And third, probably the most important, is the images of the drug seizure. You know, the, the hay bale size block of cocaine or this or the enormous cannabis factory. Oh, it's always the biggest since the last one or until the next one. Yeah. And these three images, these three images are put out. They press released. They're put out in the news. They're put out in the newspapers and now increasingly on social media. And of course, the subtext what this tells the public is that the current system is working. Which, but, that, but the police within their own systems, within their own intelligence databases, know that it's not, that these activities are not reducing crime. And more often than not, they are increasing crime. So the public are being deceived on a massive scale, a massive scale. And we need to start challenging that police narrative that this is the biggest fake news going on anywhere. Yeah, um, there was a report in Brazil the other day. They, they made um, news worldwide because they'd done a massive drug um, sting and they'd killed 25 um, of the leading criminals in a shootout. And all I could, when I looked at that, all I could remember is hearing you say, well, that just creates more violence as they all now fight for that ground again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Um, you know, I... I my mind was woken up really when after seven months of an operation, almost getting myself killed, 96 people arrested and all I did is interrupt the drug, drug supply for two hours. And the, the reality is that that made someone really, really happy and it always makes someone happy. And there's an interesting use of language actually, especially in the UK. Quite often you'll see in the news stories, a senior cop will say, we are committed to disrupting the activities of drugs organised crime, as if disruption is in itself a solution. Now, the use of that word is really fascinating, and I think that it has its origins in, a, in an army officer's training manual of how to deal with an insurgency. And you deal with an insurgency by disrupting their activities. And so the police are treating drug dealers in a community as an insurgency to disrupt the activities of instead of a multiple billion pound marketplace, which, they, which, which 
they can't influence the demand of. And if you listen to um, business academics, they talk about disruption and in an entirely different way. They, they make the point that disruption is the secret. It's the path to market growth. If you can disrupt a marketplace, you create opportunities, you make the marketplace more dynamic, you make it more efficient and mar- you get market growth. So the police, senior police, use this word disruption without any irony at all. When they don't, when, when they should be realizing what they're doing is creating market growth. And that is what the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act has been doing for, for 50 years. I suppose we need to find out um, how does it, uh, how did it come into um, force in the first place? Well, it, it was um, the end of a series of events uh, where the United States of America has shaped world drug policy through a very aggressive foreign policy. They've used all their weight as this, as this uh, superpower to make sure that everyone followed their way of treating drugs. Uh, the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act was, was the United Kingdom's concluding part of that, you know, the treat, series of treaties and agreements. Uh, we had bits of drug laws before that. You know, we had some uh, possession cannabis arrests and um, we had the Amphetamines Act uh, and the Dangerous Drugs Act in, 19, in the 60s. But the, the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act was, the, was bringing all of the drug laws together and making turning it into a war chest of powers. And it even brought in this uh, theoretical supply offence where police can make a judgment to charge somebody with possession with intent to supply. So you don't even have to have supplied. You, they just have to consider that you might, that you would do intent to supply something. And so it really was a war chest of powers. And Section 23 of the Act gives the police incredible powers of stop and search in the street, incredible powers to go to the magistrate and smash someone's doors in in the morning and search their house for the for the sin of having some substance in their house. It's It's an extraordinarily brutal piece of legislation which has completely shifted what policing actually is in this country and 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 you know similar legislation around the world has done the same everywhere yeah it's kind of a it was kind of a world thing wasn't it this rule it came in uh, everybody adopted it didn't they in the world pretty much yeah yeah very much i mean wherever you are really the drug the drugs acts are very very similar because they are based on the requirements of the 1961 single convention on narcotics which was the United States bullying everyone, putting everyone into, into their place in terms of how they treat drug policy. And you know, it was completely contrary to the British way of doing things, because in Britain, if someone had a problem with drugs up until the end of the 1960s, then they'd go to the doctor and the doctor would help them. It was a quite a civilised approach, really. Um, you know, if someone had a problem with heroin, they were prescribed by the doctor. And only when we stopped doing that did we start to have a heroin problem. Yeah, I think that's one thing people don't realise. And when I do get into these conversations with people, I always say, um, Britain, we were very liberal with drugs and we treated people as uh, as the victim, not a criminal, and um, as a you know more of a patient. And and when they hear that, they, they're shocked by it. And they, you can see their brains ticking, go, hold on a second, we were forced into this law. And and I think that's a really important aspect that we should we should remember. Uh, only you know 60 years ago we were we were a, a good country when it came to being a drug addict we would help you yeah exactly exactly and not, uh, not only as a point of principle and he, or even pride in being british you know uh, that, that we cared for people rather than judge them and, and, and criminalize them 
not only for, for the pride of it, but because there is incredible evidence that that was the best way of doing things. Yeah. You know, and we should be following evidence for, for policy. It's not, I don't think that's too much to ask. Um, you know, but at the time when America was trying to force the UK to, to adopt their policy in terms of heroin, they measured their heroin addicts in the hundreds of thousands, and we measured ours in the hundreds. So whose system was better? Yeah, I know. And, and now what's frustrating is America is starting to relax their laws on, on things like psychedelics and obviously definitely cannabis. And yet we're still stuck um, with, the, uh, with, with the old rules and laws and doesn't seem that any politicians want to change that. Well, yeah, that's true. But, but there are some very interesting things happening in the United Kingdom. Because if you look at Scotland, the drug death crisis has got so bad in Scotland that even politicians can't ignore it anymore. And because it's become a genuine political crisis, it's actually influencing politics in the way that it, it just hasn't at all south of the border. You know, if, if you were to ask pe people in England, you know, what are your top 20 political concerns? Very few of them would write uh, drug policy reform, or drug policy issues in that top 20. In Scotland, it would be in your top three or four because the drug death crisis is touching so many people. And so you've got this situation where for the last two years now, just over two years, the SNP has had drug decriminalisation in their manifesto um, and various other drug reform policies. And you've got politi politicians of every colour talking about being progressive on drug policy. But the situation is that drug policy is not in the power of the Scottish Parliament to change. Yeah, I think the problem is, though, I, I did some digging around and I ended up speaking to, um, a, I don't know what you call them, a, a lobbyist or a spin doctor, somebody who works with governments, and they were heavily influential in getting gay marriage across uh, the line. Um, and that I said to them, what, what's the appetite like for drug reform? He said, there is no appetite in, in, in English politicians because they don't gain anything from it. At the moment, the public is so far behind people like your way of thinking, the way that I think now after meeting you and reading your books, the public are so far behind. And also, he said, a lot of the politicians, they're terrified of their kids getting involved in skunk and all these, uh, you know, major major words and and that rhetoric he says that that keeps coming back which is um if you you know you tell the family that you tell the families that you know that thing which we've had all through covid as well if anyone ever argues another side you tell the families of the dead people that you tell the families of the dead kids that the one who took the ecstasy you're the one who took the you know whatever it was and that's always the argument against it isn't it that one family or that one uh, that one person who died um, at a party and the, the the counter argument of it might be crap stuff they're taking or you know or, or it could be an accident things like that, that, that it never adds up for them does it no that's true but but things are changing though and as, as i say that this this is going to be down to the growth of social movements and we just have to keep working hard at making that movement grow uh, but you know the think of the children argument is being reclaimed by us reformers because you know where they've uh, where they've regulated cannabis in America, in the USA, and Canada, the evidence is clear that underage consumption of that drug has gone down because regulation works. Regulation does restrict child access to the drugs better than prohibition does. So you know the evidence is starting to come, but of course it's the perception, like you say, we we have to win the hearts and minds, and 
one of the things I think that will increasingly be a political crisis that will bring about reform conversations is, is the issue of child exploitation, county lines. Because th there is now 50,000 children involved in um, county lines or similar child exploitation to sell heroin, primarily heroin and crack cocaine. Now, I know there was a BBC panorama um, uh, about this just, just last night, and it said nothing new, and it allowed the police to say that we are cracking down on this and reducing it. However, there is no evidence that the police have reduced any of it, and there is good evidence that it has stayed pretty constant and actually increased. Um, you know, the elephant of the room, in the room when you rescue, say, say you rescue 20 kids from a county lines operation, the elephant in the room is that the market forces mean that 20 more get corrupted into it because children are such wonderful commodities for organised crime in that marketplace because they are the perfect buffer zone between the police and the gangsters. So it's not, it's not going to end until we legally regulate those markets and take control away from organised crime. But of course, we have to have these conversations with the public and we have to explain to them that our children and everyone else's children are going to be significantly safer if we take control back, if we take control away from these gangsters. And, th and that's the message we have to get out there. So we basically just have to keep finding the platform and getting that message out. Well, I, st I still feel really conscious about having this conversation with you now that that people are going to uh, be aggrieved by it. I'm a TV presenter on a Sunday morning TV show. I'm in entertainment. I don't mind doing it because I think it's an important message, but I still feel nervous about doing it because we've demonized that world so much, understandably, because you're not telling people to take drugs and nor am I, but we're just saying the way it's operated at the moment is horrific and it, it needs a rethink, but it's a tough thing to talk about, isn't it? It it is a tough tough thing to think to talk about. I I totally agree. But again, it's my organisation which is making it easier for people because we're from the cops. We we are people who've been on the front line of this war on drugs. And we're telling you it ain't working. And this is an interesting thing actually because there hasn't been as much political movement because of COVID, of course. But on the twenty sixth of this month, I will be addressing many parliamentarians uh, for an event for the. Uh, all-party group on drug policy. And there are increasingly num increasing numbers of politicians taking significant notice of us because we are police. And the movement, our movement, grows around the world. Now, exa an example of that, for example, is in Canada. Now, in Canada, they're not a member of my organisation, but they, are, they work closely with us and they are part of the growing movement of police. And the Canadian chiefs, and I mean all of the Canadian chiefs, not just the organisation, but each one voted unanimously to take this decision. And the Canadian chiefs of police called upon, just last year, the Canadian government to decriminalise possession of all drugs. This is all the police chiefs calling on the government to do it. And this is an example of where... Us law enforcement people have had enough and we are now standing up and taking a political stance. And another example is, is in are Europe. They, are they going to do it? The Well, it's interesting um, because in the 12 months before that, um, Justin Trudeau said that um, he his government had no intention of decriminalising possession. Um, and his response to the chiefs was not so clear cut. Um he sort of suggested that it was under review. But, you know, the chiefs are still going to 
go public, they're still going to put the pressure on, and, to, and they will do until it changes. Can I just say, right? Um, I, I'm a I'm a criminal because I've taken drugs, um, and I imagine if you're listening to this, you're probably a criminal, okay? Because of this act, um, I'm going to go through some of the some of the drugs. Class A includes heroin, cocaine, crap, crack, sorry, MDMA, ecstasy. Um, LSD, DMT, psilocybin. Um, and what's interesting about that, oh, class B is ketamine, um, barbiturates, cannabis, codeine, things like that. And then uh, class C is uh, GHB, diazepam, and, and, and all those sorts of things and steroids. Um, what's interesting is I did a, uh, I did a, I, I put myself in a trial since I've, I've seen you, Neil, um, of psilocybin at the Imperial College. I heard about this trial happening and they wanted, they wanted somebody who'd never taken psychedelics before and that was me. So I said, can I do it? And they went, you sure? And I went, yeah, I'd love to do it. So I did it and it's been an amazing experience for me. One I want to do a podcast about um, at some stage. Once they've released um, the, uh, once they've released all the data, then they'll do a podcast with me, they said. So I'm just waiting on that. It was a year ago, so these things take time. It took them three years to get the substance in the country. And so far, all the tests in America and UK, I wasn't tested on this particular subject. They just wanted to see how my brain changed and what happened. Um, and I'll reveal that on a podcast one day, but something exciting did happen, positive, by the way. Uh, but they've tested on people with depression and it's amazing results they've had for people, along with MDMA and um, LSD. And all these things are illegal. And you get, you would get so much, you know, I mean, the, the, the prison sentences for what I did would be ridiculous. I would, I would have had, uh, what have I got? Class A, I didn't have possession, but I'd have had uh, six months and a 5,000 pound fine, wouldn't I, if I'd got caught with that stuff. So, I mean, oh no, that's supplying possession. What did I have? I just had possession. I'd have had uh, seven years in prison for, <laughs> for, for taking psilocybin. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is absolutely ridiculous. I'm, I'm so glad you did that, by the way. Um, th thank you for putting your head up and, and doing that, because it is going to be an incredibly important trial. And to have your profile as being involved in it, it's going to be fantastic. Um, but yeah, it is ridiculous. And to quote David Nutt, um, he, he says that, the, that our drug laws uh, in terms of uh, psychedelics has been the greatest um, censorship of science since Galileo yeah because it has prevented it's 50 years of just just in the 60s when the science was was incredibly groundbreaking and exciting um where they were starting to understand the, the causes of various mental health problems and it was just switched off it was just stopped for an ideological reason and that is a terrible thing and it's so good that now there's the beginnings of a psychedelic renaissance but it does really highlight that our drug laws have just been based on ideology and they are completely stupid. Mm. Can I just say, I did it in a really controlled environment at the Imperial College. I don't recommend you go and take psilocybin unless you're uh, around professionals who, who know what they're doing. Um, it, it's only a positive experience for me, though, and, and I can't wait to discuss it on a podcast one day because I think it's really exciting. And, and their findings have been amazing, which is great. I've heard some early, early findings from it, and I just think it's great. Uh, another thing that I read in the news sort of today, I think it was, um, the, the police were shocked to find hidden in a wall was a machine gun and uh, a load of ammunition to go in it as well with a, a drug dealer's house they raided. I mean, 
the police shouldn't really be shocked. It's all in your book, that, <laughs> your books, that this has happened. It's been happening for a long time that the drug dealers now have machine guns. So I assume that's licensed for the for the uh, tabloids just to make some sensationalist headlines. You expect to find machine guns these days, don't you? Well, you do. Yeah, you do. And, and that's, again, um, since the Misuse of Drugs Act, you know, in, in drug wars, we explored how time, how things have changed over time. And the, the, the truth of it is, with every passing year, organised crime are more likely to be using firearms to defend their territory or to try and acquire more. And that news story that you refer to, I think, also followed various um, journalistic analysis of the fact that it, the police are saying that this is an Albanian gang and, that, and the NCA say that now Albanian gangs dominate much of the UK drug markets, apart from in Liverpool. Uh, now, if that wasn't some open warfare about to happen or an indication of it, I, I don't know what is because, you know, ga- gangs do fight each other over territory and Albanians have been, I don't, I don't want to make this about any particular ethnicity or, or national or nationality. Um, it, it could be anyone that, who, who could have dominated um, the trade. But the truth is you can always expect more violence. And there's an interesting uh country which has been leading the way on gang violence in the last few years and that's Sweden. Now Sweden are fascinating because they are probably the most batshit crazy nation in terms of drug policy in Europe. They're obsessed with the ideology and believe that their current strict system is working. You can even be prosecuted from a blood test for possession in Sweden wow. which is which is incredibly oppressive and just horrific and they have the 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 biggest clampdowns, you know, the strictest police. And as a result, they have the worst violence in Europe. In, in Sweden, the drug gangs are, have, have moved on to using improvised explosive devices and grenades. And they are having hundreds of bombings in Sweden, like terrorist attacks. But it's drug gangs fighting over the right to supply the Baltic states because the, 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 the Swedish gangs have become the most dominant they fight to supply uh, drugs in, in Denmark, in Finland and the, and the other Baltic states. And they're, they're having open warfare in Stockholm. And, you know, this is and that's the result. You know, the, wherever you are in the, in the world, I think it's, it's reasonable to say that the more aggressive and strict the drug policy um, and punitive actions, the more violence you get from organised crime. And so what have we got to look forward to? In some parts of the world, the organised crime actually runs the countries, doesn't it? Well, yes, exactly. And I'm glad you raised that because this is a, a one of the things that we really need to be considering. Wherever you are in the world, at every level, as I've said, policing increases the likelihood of corruption because police take away the opposition and allow monopolies to form. Now, this works at every level, you know, street level, regional, national and international. And what this has helped form international um cartels which now control entire nations so in particular if you look at the nations in west africa senegal guinea guinea bissau they are now narco states they've been completely taken over the cartels gave up on just corrupting officials like customs and local politicians they just decided to take over the whole government and it's now accepted by international police intelligence they are run by cartels and this is spreading now, there's an interesting report that came out just a few weeks ago by, by an organisation called the Global Initiative. Now, the Global Initiative are the, the really clever people who are, who are studying 
transnational organized crime. And this report that's just come out states that the growth of transnational organized crime is the biggest threat to international security and the fabric of democracy itself alongside climate change. And they also make the point that combating climate change is also significantly a bigger challenge because of the growth of transnational organized crime. So, you know, when I read this report, it feels like it did decades ago when the people were beginning to talk about how dangerous climate change was. And it seems like, you know, we're going to have to steer this big oil tanker of policy bit by bit. And I just hope that people sit up and take notice of these dangers quickly because things are not looking good. You know, the power of organised crime can reach a tipping point where it'll be very difficult to turn away from it. It'll be very difficult to claim back nations like Mexico, where if, you're, if, you're, if your relative is murdered in Mexico, you've got less than a 1% chance of justice from the state, probably because it's the police that have committed the murder. You know, it's, these kind of situations are going to be very difficult to get back from. And I hope that people listening really sit up and take notice of this as a warning. So is there a domino effect? If we make drugs, uh, if we have drug reform and there's sort of a legal, a legal trade around the world, suddenly we start as a government or as a country, we start saying we're only going to deal with good guys. We're not dealing with the criminals. Will we see a change around the world where people go, oh, we have to legalise that? Say us in America and a few Europe decided to make it all so that so there's a legal trade in, in them. Would, would all those countries down in South America start going, we need to start looking like we're not criminals anymore, otherwise we're not going to get the trade well i mean i'm not saying it's not complicated because international drug prohibition is going to be very difficult to unpick however one of the great advantages in drug policy reform will be for social equity in those countries which have been most impacted by it to so the producer and the transit countries because you know international organized crime drug cartels are not the best people to help equity and make sure that the wealth of of, of drugs is, is shared out equally. You know, people are oppressed. And with good governance, this is something which can create a huge boost to the welfare and economies of places like Bolivia and Colombia, and significantly in Afghanistan, of course, because Afghanistan has an in incredible wealth of um, dr drug policy assets in poppies, the ephedra plant, um, which could completely rebuild the country if you had that the security in place and you, know, you could take the money away from organised crime and even um, terrorists, insurgencies and various groups by actually taking the control of that plant away and controlling it by the state. So, you know, there are huge advantages for peace, security, social equity. But of course, you know, an international problem, the United Nations ain't going to solve this problem in a hurry. Because I, we, my organisation um, speaks each year at the United Nations Committee on Narcotic Drugs. You know, we make it known what our feelings are, but there isn't going to be much movement there. What we have to do is create almost a revolutionary shift in policy in, in each individual nation state. So we have to make it happen in our own nation. And that's where the domino effect will come. Because, And it's happening already. It's happening already because... Lots of politicians around Europe are looking at the success in Canada, um, you know, the drop in crime, the drop in child consumption, um, the financial benefits of the legally regulated cannabis market. 
And, you know, there is a political awakening happening. We just got to keep pushing and make it happen quicker. We, st- we still um, grow cannabis, uh, but not allowed to take it over here legally. That's still the case, isn't it? We, we've, still got, we've still got farms in Kent and places like that behind barbed wire. Yeah, we are still the biggest net exporter of medical cannabis in the world still. And British Sugar uh, is one of those people that have licensed to grow it. Um, GW Pharmaceuticals, as you say, in Kent. So it's extraordinary. Uh, that yeah, yeah the, which, the, it's still illegal well, over here, yeah? But it's still illegal. Well, medical cannabis, is, medical cannabis is theoretically now legal, but we have this appalling, appalling situation where only rich people can afford it because the prescriptions are so are, are, are so expensive. Although a shout out to uh, Drug Science Project 2021, um, where they're trying to make it more affordable for people. But, but that's not enough. There needs to be political movement to make it free uh, to those that need it. I think we've also got to point out, and it was mentioned in your book, and ever since then I've read it, the media has a, has a part to play in this. It's a really easy story, isn't it? In the 60s, the story was all the kids are taking LSD and they're going to, um, I don't know, kill themselves and kill you and whatever else. There, there's always been these sort of um, stories. And there was a recent one not so long ago, I see you reacted to it on social media, where someone was talking about hippie crack, where they're, they're inhaling the... Uh, the, the canisters which you use for cake making I think and and I think helium isn't it and and they were saying these will kill your kids and it, it was another sort of sensationalist story which helps keep the drug laws secure yeah exactly and and irresponsible um cynical journalism has been one of the biggest contributing factors to this to slowing down the social movement uh, because, you know, for a long time, journalists just have thought, well, it's drugs, we can say what we want. It doesn't have to be based on evidence. Yeah, and this hippie crack thing, it's, it's nitrous oxide, laughing gas, which has been used recreationally for a long time. And it's, it's so rare to have any health problem with it. Um, you know, and if you take the, home, the right harm reduction advice, it's, a, it's an incredibly safe thing to use, much safer than uh, an array of other, of other drugs. So, yeah, to... to to demonise it in the way that the newspapers and online media does is 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 so dangerous. It's so counterproductive um, because you know wherever governments clamp, clamp down on supply, they never reduce that supply. They just make the supply more dangerous, and we don't want to make any drug more dangerous for our young people. Yeah, you always get this thing. I was talking to a politician about it online not so long ago, which I'm sure after I put this podcast out, it will happen again. And they always say, if you've seen what I've seen, you wouldn't take that point of view. And I always think, and I always point them to you because I think you've seen more than most politicians have seen because you've actually been uh, in the drug squad, uh, undercover cop. Yeah, exactly. I'll throw that back at any politician. And let's let's talk about what we've seen then, shall we? Let, let's talk about the harms that's caused by the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. Let's let's have a close look at the fact that ever since that act, drugs have become stronger, cheaper, more available and more varied. More young people are using them. And drug deaths are at a record high for the fifth year running. We've got uh, fewer people in drug treatment. We've got uh, blood-borne viruses on the rise again, uh, particularly in Scotland. You know, the harms of drug policy are appalling. We've got young people traumatised by being criminalised and having their life chances affected by this ideological position. Look, I've, And as a cop, I've seen the most traumatised, the most vulnerable people in our society, people that we should, we should be taking care of. 
I've seen the way that our society treats them and it's brutal. It's piling trauma on top of trauma. And if, you know, any, any society should be judged by how well it takes care of its most vulnerable. And at the moment, we are, we are found wanting. That, that, that much is clear, I think. When you keep saying my organisation, you're talking about Leap UK, by the way. Yeah, Leap UK, but not just Leap UK, because we are an international organisation. We are the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. I'm on the board for the organisation in the USA and also in Europe, where, where we're about to um, do a series of launch events across Europe. Now, this has been slowed down, like many things, by the, by the pandemic. But we do have events planned in Brussels, uh, Vienna, which we will we'll do the concluding event in Vienna at the UNCND in, in next year, in, in just, just under 12 months' time. In the autumn, we will have an event in Copenhagen, Barcelona, Paris, um, probably another one in London as well, and maybe Edinburgh. But if anyone's listening from any other nation and you have... The resources to help us put on an event in any other European city. Uh, Helsinki have invited us, but we need some more allies there, for example. Um, then pl please get in touch. You know, we rely on the help of allies and supporters. Uh, but but you know, momentum is growing. We will we will have senior police from right across Europe speaking at these events. Seems to me, looking on, um, America seems to be in such a mess at the moment it just everything i mean sadly we're reflecting it a lot over here we we seem to be embracing their their culture a lot over here but but that it, it seems to me that a lot of it is connected with drugs how is leap usa dealing with this at the moment well leap usa has been through a really interesting uh, 12 months or so because you know, the, the, the second biggest news story after COVID in the last 12 months has been the Black Lives Matter movement, which, of course, has been gathering pace up and, you know, prior to that 12 months. But it's taken on a whole new uh, dominance with the, with the death of George Floyd. And in the USA, Leap, Leap are not just focused on drug policy like we are around the rest of the world. They have the luxury to also involve themselves in wider uh, police and, and criminal justice reforms. So their membership and the focus on them has, has grown extraordinarily in, the, in, in just over the last 12 months. It's incredible. You know, lots of new membership, lots of real fantastic uh, exposure on all the major news sites and things. So, so it's, it's good, you know, and, the, and they are literally steering uh, the reform movement in the USA. And they, they have this system called a community responders model, which is a really good uh, uh, evidence-based approach to, to this problem of police murdering black people, essentially. Um, but the focus of it always has to remain as drug policy because the Black Lives Matter movement, not everyone realises this, but it's essentially born from drug policy because you look at all of these deaths, they're about drugs. You know, one of, one of, the, one of the cops who stood by laughing at George Floyd as he died was he laughed and said, don't do drugs. You know, this is about... Uh, a perceived prejudice and and the main mechanism of the oppression of people of color all around the world has been drug policy for a long time uh, and and that's that's also the same in the uk mm. 
really worries me about the UK at the moment. Ross Kemp did this documentary not so long ago, and it was like, I didn't watch it actually, but I, I, I saw it at the trials. It's about, should they arm the police over here now? And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. So I know there are armed police, but they're like talking about arming all the police and getting more weapons in it. But they're having to do that. I I assume because the drug industry are being armed more, they're becoming more violent. So we're going to have to arm our police more and make up rather rather than reverse it. It's going the wrong way, isn't it? Yeah, and that is a really good point, Tim. Um, and people should really consider this because you know most British people are proud of the fact that our police don't need to be armed, and less than two percent of police carry guns. So and that is something to be proud of as a nation. But the, the one thing that has the chance of eroding that away is drug policy, because the only thing that is bringing drug violence to our streets, it's not terrorism, it's drug prohibition. It's the growth of drug gangs using weapons and the increased monopolization, the dominance of Albanian gangs, and the pot potential face off against um, traditional British gangs like in Liverpool. This just means more chance of firearms and more of, a more of a demand need for, for British police to carry them. So you, you, you frame it perfectly right. Do we want to accept this or do we want to challenge the causes and tell our politicians to stop it? How do you feel at the moment? Do you feel frustrated or do you feel positive we're going in the right direction? Well, I'm a full-time activist, so I have to stay positive to, to keep going, really. So I'm optimistic, you know. Um, the, the growth of political support and interest in drug policy reform in the UK and across Europe is, is fabulous. It is growing really rapidly and eventually that will force changes within uh, mainstream politics. But that's only as a result of the social movement. And so if anyone listening to this is finding themselves in agreement or they found themselves suddenly interested in this issue, then you are now part of the social movement. And so it's up to you as well. You know, it's all of our responsibility to keep us all talking about this, to persuade the undecided, to get other people to listen to this podcast and for, that, for them to consider the issues as well. We all have a part to play in this. You know, see, see yourself as that flag waver and, and, and protester in the 1960s who were campaigning against the the illegality of homosexuality or campaigning to end the death penalty. This is the same thing. You can, you can take this fight up and that's what we need to do. We need to grow this movement, but there are some, you know, there are some tools to help you though. Um, now I mentioned earlier on about how police control the narrative and together with anyone's child, which is another fantastic and very important organization people should look up together with anyone's child, at Leap Week UK, we made a little video. And it's quite cheeky, this video, because it's made to be used in response to police social media accounts where police have claimed success from a drug seizure. And so this video seeks to just briefly explain to people that this is a deception, that the police are actually telling you something that's not true here because they've not reduced crime, they've increased it. And but the reason that we made this video, we made it as a tool for people to use because almost everyone goes on social media. Everyone is seeing these posts from their local police. Post this video politely in the comments from the police social media accounts, even if it's there already. Put it there again. 
because the more that this message gets out there, the more it's causing conversations. And, and um, at Leap UK, we have heard from many sources that we have within the police that this video is provoking conversations exactly where we want it to be provoking conversations. Do the police hate you? <laughs> well, six years ago or so, I was public enemy number one to the covert policing world. And many people who work very hard in drugs investigations perhaps still feel that way towards me. But but no, but nowadays, and again, this is this is a sign of the changing signs that I've I've been invited to speak to trainee police. Um I've I've spoken alongside senior police in the UK and around the world, and increasingly we have more allies than we do enemies. And you know that. Police are key to changing this policy because we know the truth. And so I call on any colleague listening to this. You know the truth. And if you're honest and, be, and with the public, we can change things quicker. Uh, and just a reminder, if you do want to get involved and you're listening to this, if, if you are a parent, um, as Neil's pointed out in this podcast in the, in the past, it is easier for your kids to buy drugs than it is alcohol and cigarettes because it, we've made it really hard for them to buy alcohol they need to, to show up with some id whereas buying drugs they can just go on the street and buy it and that, and that's a, and the drugs we don't know what the hell's in them too yeah that's an important point and and um there's a growing sadly a growing list of uh, members of anyone's child who are campaigning because of those reasons, because though there are so many parents in the organisation, anyone's child, who have found out the hard way of the truth of what you've just said. Um, people like Anne-Marie Coburn, check out their videos on anyone's child. Uh, they're people who campaign because they've lost their children to drug policy or, or their young people have been traumatised by being sent to prison because of, because of drug policy. Do you ever think you'll get us to a stage where you can do a march? I mean, you talked about great uh, civil rights movement in the past. They've, they've usually had a march which encourages people to look into the matters and to discuss them. Do you think you'll ever get to a stage where you can do that? Yes, I think so. Um, it's, it's difficult at the moment to get mass involvement, but we do do uh, events like this. So, for example, uh, in, in June, uh, around June the 26th, we normally have a mass lobby of of parliaments so together with anyone's child and lots of other um, allied organizations we turn up and demand to speak to our mps and we do a mass lobby and then, and then we do event events in parliament green and we have a big photo up with, with the the increasing numbers of parliamentarians who support us and we had them from every party supporting us the last time we did that um, and it was a huge event so but you know these events will grow and grow um, and, you know, one thing, another thing that people can do is we, we work with anyone's child to, to carry out uh, local events. So, for example, we did a tour of West Wales just, um, just before the pandemic. Uh, small towns in West Wales. We got all of the local councillors, the local mayor, all of the local, lots of local people to hear an event, you know, to hear anyone's child speak, to hear what someone from Leap speak. And suddenly the whole community is behind us and explaining this to people community by community is is a way of making that movement grow so again if anyone's listening if you've got access to a village hall um if, if you've got a local politician or anyone who wants to get involved and host us 
speak to us and we will put on an event for you. We will get the local press. We might even get the local regional television, local radio. We'll do an event for you. Uh, and finally, um, Neil, the uh, the pushback I always get on it is um, if there's prohibition, if these drugs become legal and they're not illegal anymore, you will end up with kids just off their face on smack and crack all the time. You know, we're just creating a, a, a complete culture of zombies. Um, has that been the reality when people have uh, looked at drug reform? No, far from it. Quite the opposite, in fact. Um, And this is an important point that if people find themselves forming an opinion on drugs, they should ask themselves, where does that opinion come from? Is it what I've seen in the media, what the police have put out on social media, or is it based on evidence? We should base all of our opinions on policy on evidence. And the evidence is overwhelming that there are great benefits to society and individuals and for the protection of our children wherever there has been any kind of drug policy reform. So if you look at Portugal, for example, the numbers of overall drug users has not gone down. It stayed the same. However, the number of overall drug users is not the the important number. The important number is the number of problematic users, people who have significant health problems with drugs. In Portugal, those numbers have dropped dramatically. So in other words, The Portuguese system of decriminalising drug possession has helped, significantly helped, the most vulnerable people in their society. In Canada and America, where they've legally regulated cannabis, child consumption has gone down, not up. In in Switzerland, their crime has dropped by 50% because they prescribe heroin to people who use it problematically. They look after them with a private prescription from the government. And... That has meant, actually, that the illicit market for heroin has shrunk and children are less, far less likely to get access to it. And the evidence is clear. There are no children dealing heroin in Switzerland like there are on the streets of our country. So let's go with the evidence. What's Portugal's policy? Por- Portugal, uh, they decriminalised possession of drugs. So possession of drugs is no longer a criminal criminal offence. If you are caught with drugs, you are you are sent to what's called a dissuasion commission, where you will meet with a qualified drug worker to see if you have a problem um, and to see if you need any help. If you don't, you're very much left alone. Um, and that has meant, because they saved huge so much money in the enforcement of drugs, they've been able to invest it in drug treatment services. So people are looked after rather than persecuted. Now, From my organisation's point of view, uh, from a policing point of view, that's great because less people die. (laughs) That's good. Less people have blood-borne viruses. That's good. But from a policing point of view, it's still organised crime that that runs that business. And so there is still that corrupting influence in society and associated violence. So although Portugal has a far better policy than we do in the UK, we could do better. We could do better and we have to strive to do better because we have to beat the power of organised crime uh, before it goes too far and then we can never bring it back. Neil, always great to talk to you. Um, We'll get together again in six months or so and uh, have another chat and see where we're at, yeah? Great. Good speaking. Um, Good to see you.